0: My name's Anthony, and this is my podcast, Theologizing Life, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Hello, welcome to episode four of Theologizing Life. In this episode, I sat down with Brian Burke, he is the president of of Wellsprings of Freedom International, a prayer and inner healing and deliverance ministry. And so we sat down and we talked about spiritual freedom, spiritual warfare, demonic activity, and a host of other things. This is part one of two. Part two will be released October 21st. I hope you will check out both part one and two. And uh, thank you for listening. Enjoy. Hello, Welcome to episode four. I'm here with Brian Burke. Uh, he is the is it president of Wellsprings uh, International, Wellsprings of Freedom International. Um, Brian, thanks for coming on. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, who is Brian in a nutshell? What's your story?
1: Thanks so much, Anthony, uh, for the invitation to be here today. Uh, Brian is simply a, a, a lover, a follower of Jesus, a child of God, a, a husband, father of a beautiful 11-year-old daughter, uh, pastor, a missionary, church planner, who spent 12 years on the mission field in Russia, uh, involved in the work of evangelism and church planning and leadership training and development, theological education. Um, I just consider myself to be a kingdom leader and an equipper uh, who's been called and anointed by God to, to set his children free around the world. So that's Brian in a nutshell.
0: That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, and uh just the range of experience the cross cultural the range of ministry experience is um i mean more than maybe your your typical pastor sometimes gets um especially in the the time frame that you've had some of this experience um as I mentioned, uh, you are the president of a ministry called Wellsprings of Freedom International. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the ministry? Uh, what is it? The ministry does. What does it look like? Um, and maybe even uh, how? How did you find yourself in the role uh, that you are in in this ministry?
1: Yeah, great questions. Uh, simply defined, Wellsprings of Freedom International is a prayer ministry uh, that helps believers in Jesus experience deeper levels of healing. And freedom in Christ. Uh, we are a ministry that is team-based. And so we have teams of trained volunteers who meet with individual clients throughout the week who are struggling with various fears and depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and fits of anger and rage, excessive negative self-talk in their minds, living under heavy weights of shame and guilt and condemnation, or, or even suffering from chronic illness and pain. We offer uh, two types of sessions. Uh, The first are what we call the freedom sessions that focus more on the emotional, spiritual healing that we need as Christians. And then we also offer one-hour physical healing prayer sessions for people in our community who have uh, chronic physical issues or illness that they would like healing prayer for. Um, The reality is, you know well, Anthony, there's a large group of very broken, hurting, troubled people in the body of Christ today, Uh, many of these individuals are deeply wounded, even as Christians, and they're desperately seeking help, and they're looking for a place to go, and I truly believe it's the church uh, that needs to be the one who, uh, who has the answer, who needs to be the hands and feet of Jesus to offer that hope and healing and freedom to those who are in bondage. My own personal uh, journey into this ministry began about 16 years ago uh, when uh, one of our longtime supporting churches, partnering churches here in the United States that was partnering with our ministry in Russia came and uh, trained us uh, in this Wellsprings model of ministry. Uh, We were ministering in a context, a cultural context that was what I describe as a culture of bondages, a culture of addictions. Uh, Unfortunately, alcoholism is rampant, Uh, drug use is rampant in Russian culture, and so we found ourselves leading people to faith in Christ, but when they'd come to Christ, they would continue to struggle with the same old addictions and bondages and fears that they had prior uh, to conversion, and so as we say in this ministry, they were forgiven but not yet free in Mm -hmm. Christ, and we wanted to help them to be free, and so what we found and discovered is that this spiritual warfare deliverance component to our ministry was the missing link in our discipleship efforts on the mission field. And what it helped us do is restore the power dimension of the gospel back into the church where we could truly help people be free and to truly become the people who God created and designed them to be.
0: Man, uh, thanks for for just sharing about that. Um, and. Uh, we're gonna dive a little bit into, you know, you mentioned spiritual warfare. And it's interesting, as you were uh, talking about that, the conversion, you know, forgiven but not yet free, and the spiritual warfare component to freedom. Um, I was thinking about how, in the early church, which I'm not super uh, super knowledgeable in church history, not not a, a, a you know, a professor of church history, but in the early church, um new, new followers of Jesus before baptism. Um, not only did they have to go through sort of a process of learning doctrinal things, but they, they had to go through an exorcism, uh, before, um, being baptized in the church. Um, it's interesting that somewhere down the line, we sort of, uh, I don't know, we sort of don't talk about that as much in, in connection to, um, spiritual warfare. Um, I want, to, I want to dive into that, and I think first what's helpful sometimes is sort of to define terms so, so everyone knows what we're talking about. What, what is spiritual warfare, and how are we a part of this unseen uh, war, if you will?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. I think when I read Scripture, and really from beginning to end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, the Bible presents two kingdoms in conflict. Uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, or the kingdom of this world as it's described in Scripture. Uh, We see this spiritual conflict uh, playing out in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, when the tempter comes to Adam and Eve with that first temptation. We see it playing out all throughout Scripture, into the Gospels, into the New Testament, where Jesus has a face-to-face encounter with the devil in the wilderness uh, after fasting for 40 days. And so, We recognize that we have a very real spiritual enemy as Christians. He's powerful, and he's on a a mission to counter and oppose God's kingdom work in this world. And I don't know if there's a more explicit passage on spiritual warfare in the scriptures than Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is, is exhorting the Ephesian believers to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, and then tells them to put on the full armor of God So they can take their stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Because he said our struggle, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers and the authorities and against the spiritual forces of evil at work in the heavenly realms. And so we know that Satan is real. He exists. Um, He has a level of power and he's out to he's anti God. He's anti Christ. He's anti-church, he's anti-love and he will use whatever means uh, at his disposal to stop what God has planned and purposed on this world.
0: Um, yes, thank you for sharing and thank you for referencing um, the the scriptural piece I uh, was reading in the Gospels. I don't it's either Matthew or Mark and um, it's interesting Jesus calls the disciples and designates them as apostles and it says he called them to be with him. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom, and to heal the sick and cast out demons, uh, that was for Jesus anyway. That was sort of taken for granted as part of uh, part of the ministry that he sent them on. Um, so it 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 is very biblical. But um, where we talked about you, you mentioned Satan is is our enemy and he's powerful. Where did he get his? power where um, how does he have the degree of authority that he does have um, how would you how would you explain that or answer that
1: mm-hmm. yeah I theologically we know from the scriptures that uh, Satan wasn't always bad uh, wasn't always evil uh, that he was one of God's beautiful creations created as one of the angels and most theologians speculate that he most likely was one of the archangels. Created by God. His name was Lucifer. We know that from Isaiah 14, meaning light bearer. Uh, And we know that his heart became filled with pride. In fact, in Ezekiel 28 gives us a second glimpse of Satan and his original created state and his fall. It says you were he was the model of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty, adorned with every precious type of stone. But in his heart, he became proud. And he was cast down to the earth. And so we know that Satan rose up in rebellion against God, trying to usurp God's throne uh, and uh, was thrown down in judgment to the earth. And, And about a third of the angels we know from Scripture rose up in rebellion with him. And we believe that those fallen angels or dark angels or evil angels are the ones simply called demons in the New Testament.
0: Um. Thank you. I just, uh, there's a lot of questions um, that I want to dive into. Um, the You mentioned demons and uh, the ministry deals with addressing spiritual warfare. Um, could you sort of explain the difference between demonic oppression and demonic possession? Um, I think there's sort of this idea among Christians that, you know, once you're saved, it's sort of like your immunity shield or something, like your immunity cloak from uh, being oppressed in very specific ways. Um, and then sort of with that question, uh, can you also sort of share how addressing, uh, spiritual warfare on this level is different from, you know, the Hollywood depictions of like the exorcist or something. Um, can you just help sort of shape the, the lay of the land and the reality of what this looks like and sort of, uh, deconstruct some of the false, um, assumptions if they're false, maybe they're not, maybe, uh, Maybe they're true. Um, tell us a yeah. little bit about that.
1: This is such a key discipleship uh, topic, because the North American Church, quite frankly, is woefully weak in its spiritual warfare training of, of new believers and new converts. Um, as we've Equipped and trained numerous churches, more than 60 churches now uh, in the US. We've run into a number of myths and misconceptions and misunderstandings about spiritual warfare and demonization versus demon possession, and so I'd love to be able to to clarify that for us and our understanding of it. Um, we've been in some churches that believe when you come to Christ uh, Satan leaves you alone that somehow some way you are immune to demonic attack you don't have to worry about it anymore and yet we know that from our experience that just doesn't line up that just doesn't hold true and i would assume that's the same for for the majority of christ followers here in our own country and around the world um Let me unpack this scripturally, uh, because that's what we love to do at Wellsprings of Freedom International. We always go back to the original Greek language of the New Testament to help explain terms and concepts, to use the terminology that even Jesus used or the New Testament writers used. Uh, We know in the New Testament the the word for demon, the Greek word, is diamond. There's a second word, daimonion, is a second noun. And there's a verb, daimonizomai, which literally means to be demonized. And so we see this in a passage such as Matthew 12, verse 22, when it says that there was a, in the NIV, English translation, it says there was a demon-possessed man who was brought to Jesus who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see, but in the original Greek, it literally says there was a demonized man who was brought to Jesus who was both blind and mute. And so we like to use the term demonization to describe how Christians can still come under demonic attack or under the influence of demons from time to time. This is distinguished from the concept of demon possession because the word possession is much stronger in the English language. Possession requires, uh, is often described as full ownership or control. It implies ownership or, or control. But we know as Christians, when we come to Christ, we are Owned by God, we we belong to Jesus, we are the property of Christ, we are citizen of his kingdom, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so to answer the question, can a believer be demon-possessed, our answer would be no. But if we asked it this way, can a believer come under the influence of demonic spirits, or can a believer come under spiritual attack, our answer would be yes from the scriptures. And we would describe it as being demonized versus being demon-possessed. Now, there's many different things that lead to demonization, many different ways Christians can be demonized. And I don't know if you want to get into that yet, or if you had any follow-up questions regarding that first.
0: Uh, No, go ahead. um, Share a little bit of like what what does it look like. Um, uh, And one of my things I've thought about is sort of how in the garden, um, we were created in God's image and given dominion. Um, and it seems some of the power dynamic at play is we abdicate our authority and dominion um, and sort of surrender over to Satan um, and it needs reclaimed. Um, but yeah, speak to like how how can a believer allow uh, or even not allow uh, influence, uh, demonic influence, oppression. Um, What what does it look like for us to sort of, uh, like I've heard the term foothold, to give a a foothold or or sort of crack the door open?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I I think of a passage such as Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, where Paul, the apostle, says, In your anger do not sin, Mm -hmm. do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. What's interesting about the language Paul is using there? He's using the Greek word topos for foothold, which is the term for inhabitable space. Mm. So basically he's saying, don't hold on to anger. Don't harbor anger. Don't let the day end without releasing your anger. Otherwise, you'll give Satan inhabitable space, a dwelling place in your life. Right. Which shows that 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 Mm -hmm. believers can be demonized. Even Paul was making that connection between anger and demonization, which is really interesting when you start talking about spiritual warfare. So in this ministry, in our training, there are seven what we call open doors to demonization or seven things that can open the door to demonic attack. And we group those seven things into three different categories. Things we can do as Christians that can open up the door. Things that can be done to us. And things we can inherit from our families of origin. So let's start first that first category. Things we do. This includes things like willful sin in our lives. uh, Different addictions in our lives. Whether it be drug or alcohol use or opioid addictions or sexual addictions. Other things we can do or... uh, Occult involvement, uh, our involvement in uh, New Age practices or the occult or witchcraft or Wicca or Reiki or any of these practices that are so popular in our society can become a wide open door to allow demons to afflict us to enter into our lives. Uh, We were uh, two years ago uh, visiting and led a Wellsprings mission team down to the country of Haiti for the very first time, which of course is is, uh, a center for voodoo and occult activity. And uh, the stories we heard while we were there and in the freedom sessions we led for Haitian believers were absolutely heart -heart wrenching. Uh, Most of them had grown up in families who at least had a family member who was a voodoo priest or deeply involved in voodoo and had cursed the family and the entire family had had suffered as a result. That's not only an example of things that can be done, but that's also an example of generational inheritance, uh, things we can inherit from our families as well. Um, things that can be done to us. This is a little bit harder uh, to understand, and and I think we have a harder time accepting the reality of this. Um, This can be things like abuse in all of its forms, from uh, physical and sexual abuse to spiritual abuse, from authoritarian church leaders to emotional, psychological abuse. Um, Abuse comes in many different shapes and forms, and the reality is when we are abused, we become demonized. Uh, I hate that it's true, but it is a spiritual reality, and um, that when we are wounded by others, um, hurt by others, it opens the door to, to Satan and his uh, demons in our lives. Um, and so wounds from the past, experiences of abandonment and rejection. Uh, when, when a father leaves a family, when the child is five years old, uh, that, that rips a wound, uh, causes a wound in their heart a wound of abandonment and rejection that needs some deep healing as that child grows up. Those are examples of things done to us. And then the things uh, we can inherit, as I just referenced from the story from Haiti, generational inheritance. As I like to say, every family has a spiritual history. Uh, We don't get to choose our families. Uh, We don't get to choose our generational inheritance. It's just a reality of the family we're born into. Uh, but, for example, in my own family, uh, on my mom's side of the family, there's a history of anxiety and depression and, and mental illness. Uh, on my dad's side of the family there's a history of alcoholism and addictions and abuse. And so both sides of the family have these generational patterns that have perpetuated themselves. And by God's grace, in my very first freedom session 15 years ago, Uh, those uh, generational spirits curses patterns were broken and cut off and so I get to start new patterns healthy godly patterns in my own family and can break free from my own generational patterns that that I inherited and so uh, those three categories generally are helpful things we can do things can be done to us or things we can inherit tend to break it down more simply in our minds to show how the enemy can gain access to our lives in all those different ways
0: so I think the like you said, it is kind of hard to accept the ones done to us because um, it was someone else's sin. Uh, but then it creates space for us to be shaped by sin, and and can even sometimes beget sin. So someone copes with that abuse in um, a sinful way, which they're responsible for. But you know, the argument probably can be made that like. The responsibility really lies with the person um, who hurt them. how how um, how would you help people? I mean, to me, I, I'm hearing one thing is we're a lot more connected to one another than we realize, and our sins are a lot more than just these moral infractions. Like there are ripple effects that um, that really affect people, and that's why repentance and reconciliation is so important. but I don't know what, um how do you help someone who who feels maybe uh, bitter or held accountable for something that was done to them, like that that they are suffering? Um how do you help them to see the the goodness of God, the justice of God through that? Uh, what what are some things you would kind of walk through with the the people who suffer from things done to them,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's a really good conversation to have. I would, I would start by saying this. Uh, sin doesn't just have an individual effect on a believer. It has a corporate effect on all those around that person. And so, in other words, sin isn't just individual. It's corporate in uh, its consequences. And we see this playing out in, in the ways, different ways we're wounded and hurt in our lives. And so, for example, if we go back to the five-year-old son whose father leaves the family for another woman, um, there's a wound of abandonment and rejection that's created in their life. It wasn't the five-year-old's fault, but I can guarantee you Satan will come along as the accuser and will begin to accuse and lie to that five-year-old boy to tell him it was all his fault, Mm -hmm. that it must have been something he did that caused dad to leave the family. Uh, We see this pattern over and over and over again in our freedom sessions. Satan's the father of lies. He's the accuser. So it makes sense that he would lie to that way. So it wasn't the five-year-old boy's fault, but that wound of abandonment is kind of like the garbage, the emotional garbage that Satan loves to feed on. In fact, we have a saying that demons are a lot like rats. Mm. Remove the garbage and the rats will leave easily. Okay, so let me illustrate this. When my wife and I were serving, living in Russia for many years, we lived in a big apartment building in a large city of 400,000 people. Our apartment building probably had uh, several hundred people living in it, small apartments. And behind our apartment building, in the middle of the city, were a group of dumpsters. Now, there were two outdoor dumpsters for several hundred people. And you can imagine those dumpsters would be filled up in about two days uh, after they were emptied. So what would happen come day three, four, five, all of the dumpsters would overflow. The trash would be laying on the ground. And then guess who comes along? The rats, Hmm. the animals, to begin to feed on the garbage. I want to present to you that demons are a lot like those rats that feed on the garbage in our lives. So when that five-year-old's abandoned, the demons enter in begin to lie and accuse that boy, even though it wasn't his fault, he did nothing wrong, they're feeding on the garbage inside. The rejection, the feelings of abandonment, unwantedness, of being unloved. And until that garbage is removed, the demons have a right to be there, okay? So it's it doesn't seem fair, it's not his fault, but that's the spiritual dynamic at work uh, in his life. Now, the other thing I'll share is that uh, part of our teaching is about actions versus reactions, so in other words while the action committed against that five-year-old boy was hurtful enough sometimes our reactions to the abuse our reactions to the rejection or abandonment are even more damaging to us emotionally and spiritually so the abandonment was hurtful enough and now the five-year-old boy becomes bitter and angry at dad they harbor resentment they become they they hold hatred in their heart towards dad they begin to be filled with rage and all of a sudden these negative emotions and the demonic oppression attached to those emotions makes a bad situation worse. And so their reactions have exacerbated the condition. And that's how Satan gains footholds in our lives. And so it's not just about the actions. It's also, also, has, it's also connected with our reactions as Christ followers. Godly reactions eliminate demonic influence, but ungodly sinful reactions can open the door to greater demonic influence
0: uh one of the things you mentioned earlier uh was you referenced the scripture where jesus there was um a man who uh was he the deaf and mute um and it says he was he was demonized um but then there's the physiological like component there's other places in scripture um like peter's mother-in-law jesus one translation says he rebuked the fever um can you help explain the correlation. And you also mentioned like uh, anxiety, depression, and these are things that, um, we know, I mean, even bitterness and unforgiveness, they can see it has neurological effects on the brain. Um, what, what does the physical and spiritual connection, uh, look like and what are, uh, when, how do you have the discernment to know when, uh, this, sp- person is being demonized with anxiety and there's um, an imbalance. Is it an either or, both and? uh, What kind of discernment goes into distinguishing uh, sort of how to approach that?
1: Yes, this is a great question because I think in the West and in North America in particular, we're taught The principle of single causation. Is it this or is it this? Mm. Is it demonic influence or is it mental illness? Is it a chemical imbalance or is it demonization? Right? It's one or the other. But what we teach in this ministry is there can actually be dual causes to problems in our lives. And we struggle with that intellectually as Americans, but maybe it's a both-and scenario. Maybe there's a chemical imbalance and demonic oppression attached to it, right? And so... How do we know? Well, that's the beauty of having a team-based ministry that operates in the gifts of discernment, given at the discretion of the Holy Spirit in a freedom session that can help us to discern and to distinguish. Is this a genuine mental illness or is there real demonic oppression here that needs to be removed from this believer's life? So God does give the spiritual gifts and the ability to discern the difference in our freedom sessions or our physical healing sessions. But what I'd like to highlight is scripturally, we know that uh, God has created us with this, with three parts as human beings, right? With the spirit, soul, and body. We see this in a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul the apostle says, Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's acknowledging that tripart nature of human beings. But what we tend to forget, we tend to compartmentalize those three parts of us, spirit, soul, and body, and we forget those are all integrated and interconnected. So in other words, healing in one area often leads to healing in another area of our lives. So for example, when a client in a freedom session works through some hard forgiveness of an uncle who sexually abused them as a child, maybe they've been struggling with chronic back pain or... Uh, a chronic pain for 30 years as an adult and in that moment of forgiveness in the freedom session they release the resentment they release the feelings of unforgiveness the bitterness the hatred and all of a sudden there's this chain of unforgiveness that chain of bondage that's broken in their life sometimes they experience miraculous physical healing we've had instances where people's spines have snapped back in the place as they described it to us we had a 60 year old man grow an inch and a half in a freedom session when uh, when he forgave his abuser, the team laid their hands and anointed him with oil and prayed for physical healing. He said, I f- felt as if my spinal cord snapped back into place. He went back to the doctor the next week, and the doctor confirmed he was an inch and a half taller now than before his freedom session. You know, the last time I checked, 60-year-olds don't grow anymore. Yeah, that's why. He wild. Did, because God still heals today. But that's an example of our spirit and soul being connected with our bodies, right? And healing in one area, leading to healing in another area. If we use the example, if we go to Luke 13, uh, Jesus walks into a synagogue and he encounters a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit for 18 years. You remember that story? Mm-hmm. She was bent over double and couldn't straighten up at all. Now, it's interesting to me is Luke, the gospel writer, is a trained medical doctor by profession. So I find it most interesting that here Luke, the doctor, is diagnosing this woman's condition, not as a physical one, but as a spiritual condition. So Luke, the doctor, is acknowledging this woman had been crippled by an evil spirit, which was causing the physical infirmity. And Jesus comes along and says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He puts his hand on her. She straightens up, and Jesus performs a miraculous healing, and she gives praise to God, which outrages the Pharisees, by the way, because he healed on the Sabbath. But what that's showing us, and there's other numerous examples in the Gospels, that that evil spirits even have the ability to attack our bodies and to afflict our health, and that is acknowledged by a medical doctor in the first century, uh, which is really interesting. So I feel like uh, as 21st century North Americans, in our intellectual sophistication, we tend to struggle with those spiritual realities, or at least belief in those spiritual realities but that was very much a part of the first century worldview and it's very much a part of the biblical worldview. And I think we need to get back to that as Christians in the 21st century.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. The integrated, uh, we're integrated wholes, Um, And, and I think both the the church and the sort of the secular realm sort of reduce issues to either or um, because we can, uh, we can, know and understand certain neurological things and how they work well see it's obviously just it's all physical or with the church because the answer is jesus and that's the remedy it's it's either spiritual but it would make sense that these things um would have physiological affection uh uh, effects and uh yeah i mean i've experienced it in my own life um anxiety manifests in physical ways um, there, there have been times where there's something in my life I knew I needed to uh, repent of, or someone I needed to forgive, and there were, uh, you know, physiological, like not whether it's just as simple as a knot in the stomach or other things. There's, uh, we're integrated holes.